Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Establish, brought to you by Shake Up the Establishment. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan, community-centered nonprofit that focuses on translating knowledge within various topics of climate justice to make this information more accessible to those living in what is currently Canada. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we have the privilege of living, working, and thriving upon land that Indigenous peoples have lived and cared for and continue to do so since time immemorial. We acknowledge that our address resides on Treaty 3 land, which is the territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeweke, Attawandarok, Mississaugas, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This episode is part of a larger project called Voices of the Greenbelt, consisting of five podcast episodes, a mini-documentary, and visual workshops. This project has been supported by the Greenbelt Foundation. The Greenbelt Foundation's grant and research activities are made possible by the generous support of the government of Ontario. Such support does not indicate endorsement by the government of Ontario of the contents of this material. My name is Atreyu Lewis, I use they-he pronouns, and I'm a two-spirit, transmasculine, non-binary, mixed indigenous, and racialized youth. I grew up in Toronto, and I'm now currently situated in Jojage, also known as Montreal, Quebec. I'm a public speaker, project manager, and grassroots leader with BIPOC organizations, as well as taking part in independent research on decolonizing methodologies, epistemologies, and promoting intersectionality and harm reduction. In this episode, we'll be speaking about nature-based solutions within the Greenbelt and how they improve resilience against climate change. Today's guest is Miranda Bash, a racialized environmental educator who co-founded the Peel Community Climate Council. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, so glad to have you part of our project. It's really nice to have you on board. Definitely as someone who is in environmental defense, who's affiliated with environmental defense, who has experience, um, lived experience with like climate justice. It's so great to be able to speak to you and ask you some questions. So just to get started, I will ask you a bit about Greenbelt resilience. The Greenbelt can really help with a lot of absorbing rainwater. It can help against greenhouse gas emissions. So you said that you were, you're based in like Brampton, like that type of area. Yes. Um, so the Brampton area, um, it actually does kind of weave into the Greenbelt a little bit and more of like the outer boundaries of it. So I guess in your opinion, what do you think has made like Greenbelt areas like the Greenbelt, like successful? I think that it definitely brings awareness first and foremost to that there is something here that is to be protected. You know, as a resident, when we're driving, we see those signs that say you're entering the Greenbelt. Um, and so right away, it brings up discussions within the car. And I know other people have chatted about it. And just that physical presence of calling it the Greenbelt is so important instead of it just being called protected land, because I think it really brings awareness that, hey, there is this specific region that is protected right in our communities. And um, we live very close or potentially within it. So that's one bit. And then I do believe it's been so successful, of course, because it prevents sprawl. Whether those are followed or not, we can chat about later. But um, I think it's just really important that it is protected by law. Absolutely. Definitely, I think the green belt, like that, really that awareness on like the effects of things, such as like greenhouse gas emissions, um, and how like the weather affects like different weather events and flooding and all those different things, and it really just plays into the whole role of climate resilience. The green belt is uh, it's a really good way for like citizens to actually get involved with um, the protection of the environment as well as like understanding how it works. So I guess in your opinion, what role does the green belt play in climate resilience from your experience? Yeah, I think it plays a lot of roles, but we can probably divide it into two categories. So one being prevention, where we think about um, carbon sequestration and um, restoration and all of the other things that go into the green belt. 
Um, and I guess just for context, I've worked at the Toronto Region Conservation Authority and Credit Valley Conservation Authority here. Um, so it protects, those are two organizations that protect the land surrounding the Credit River watershed. And these are areas that I grew up on all of the time. And it was really neat from going from hiking as a resident into these parks to then helping to manage the parks and teach folks how to navigate the trails and that type of thing. So I'm very well aware of all of the restoration projects that go on, whether it be from protecting invasive species, um, getting them out of the parks, protecting local species, uh, making the trails accessible, all of that work is so important in protecting this land space and also making sure that it's working optimally to really prevent a lot of issues like erosion. Um, and as I mentioned, protecting it is so important in carbon sequestration. So that's where we could think about it from a mitigation perspective, where it's preventing the carbon from just continuously going out in the atmosphere. It actually can be sequestered or trapped in these local parks along the green belt. But on the flip side, if we think about uh, rainfall, you know, just two weeks ago here in Brampton, there was major flooding because of all of the snow that suddenly melted so quickly. Um, over 100 homes had to be evacuated. And that is a huge portion of that is because so much of the runoff is just sitting right on top of the roads and it can't get saturated within the soil. So that's another reason why the green belt is so important in trapping that type of water. And we could assume that with more extreme weather events, whether it be rains or droughts, either way, the green belts can help um, the impacts on local communities. So yeah, we could think about it from a carbon sequestration standpoint, and then also from a biodiversity resilience standpoint. And then thirdly, nature-based solutions, which is something I looked at in my master's work. And I, you know, I looked abroad um, in different countries thinking about nature-based solutions, but the green belt right here at home is an example of the, how that can work really well. Definitely. Um, as doing, when I was doing research for the green belt um, for this project, learning things of like how the forests, wetlands and soils combined to store like over 102 million tons of carbon per year in mm -hmm. tree canopies within the green belt remove about 60 kilograms of pollutants per hectare each year. Um, things like that, that like show how the green belt can contribute to the mitigating of climate change and the different effects that come with that. And definitely like really interested like to hear that work you've been doing in your masters and like with nature-based solutions. Could you maybe speak to how like this information in the green belt, um, just the green belt in, in its whole, what is its role in like the global climate change issue? Yeah, so uh, when we think about globally, of course, carbon sequestration, I'm going to go back to that because I can't stress that enough. As a conservationist, that's really where my heart is and where I came from and how I even entered this climate realm. Um, so I think that is key in regulating our climate and holding that carbon in, but it isn't enough for us to just solely depend on. Um, but it is extremely valuable. In fact, uh, there was a blog put out by a colleague at Environmental Defense and they found that the Greenbelt's watersheds provide more than $1 billion worth of ecological services. And it does that by filtering pollution and waste, regulating our water flow and preventing floods. So if we wanted to put a dollar amount on that in the global scale, it's extremely important. Definitely. I think for the Greenbelt, it is um, it really contributes a lot to climate change. There's a lot of great things that come with like expanding areas such as the Greenbelt even though, but also it is not immune to like in consequences. There's like, there can be heat, there can be flooding. 
And then there's also like the debates around environmental restoration and protection work. Where exactly in urban spaces do we um, restore nature? Do we preserve um, like certain parks? Because there's often like a lot of other things like condos and living situations that need to be considered. But definitely um, as someone who's probably from Brampton and I'm from Toronto. So definitely knowing that like settlement and housing is a big thing and it really contributes to how like a lot of nature is, um, it's often not conserved as much as it should be. So how could an expansion of the green belt even, could that help co- combat climate change in your opinion? Well, the bigger we can get it, the better. Of course, it could prevent uh, urban sprawl from happening. So a lot of the issues I mentioned, like preventing water from going to the soil, um, it's a huge problem. And you mentioned climate resilience before. And I think my answer was looking at climate mitigation. But I actually just remembered something. When I really think about resilience and resilient communities, I think about food sovereignty as well, and ones that can grow their own food and rely on their local agricultural systems. And this land that we're developing on is crucial. And it's so, so good, such great soil for growing. Um, I have a few friends who are farmers, and they've talked about it. Um, One of them actually has like generations worth in a farmer's almanac of information of how incredible the soil is here. And I don't think many people know that if we go way up north in Ontario, the soil, we really can't grow as great quality food as we can down here. And yet we are paving over the valuable space here. So I witnessed that, unfortunately, right in my backyard. Um, There's just a street away and it's just all farmland. And then if you look the other way, it's all buildings. And so that's where I live. It's very obvious where the land fragmentation is happening. Um, And then just like a few intersections down the other way, there are conservation areas like Terracotta, Silver Creek, um, and those are in the core of the green belt. So it's a really interesting dynamic where I live specifically. But yes, you're right. Like Brampton in general does see that um, and, and expansion in general with a growing population. I really love when you brought up also like before with, with like greenhouse gases for like, yeah, but the hugest factor in like global temperatures and how also proximity to different spaces, like the houses, proximity to different nature sites and how like growing your own food, like that's also so important to me. As someone, definitely there's some people in urban spaces who can't afford to do that. As a student, I've been really trying to do that a lot more with cooking and like going more local um, if I can't necessarily grow things on my own. And really it's just about carbon footprint, I think. And like just really understanding your role in like emissions and like how human actions contribute to it, but also take into account like accessibility issues. So the green, hel- the green belt leaves gaps between cities' urban boundaries known as the white belt because of how they appear on maps. So in many cases, areas are seen as land open for development, but environmentalists really think it should be protected. So white belt lands are so important because they're like ecologically connected and they act as like a huge buffer. And it really contributes to like regions resilience with climate. But also the green belt can be, it can face a lot of threats too at the regional level, government level. I guess in your opinion, from what you've seen in some conservation sites, what do you think some of the biggest threats are for the Green Belt? So absolutely, I'd say right now, just in the work I'm doing at the Community Climate Council, uh, within my work at Environmental Defense, I have to mention the 413 as being one of the biggest threats right now that will de- be developed on Green Belt land, m- many of which grows, you know, goes through a lot of my friends' backyards, and they're actually considering moving and things like that. So it's really not just impacting biodiversity, but it's impacting people as well. So I would definitely talk about that. And then urban sprawl in general. 
And, you know, this can be attributed to non-environmental reasons as well. If we think about like the entire structure of our world right now, thinking about being um, a young person and how unaffordable housing is, it's obviously going to force people out and make leaving very appealing. And so there's just so many other socio-political things and driving factors that are attributed to the Greenbelt and its uh, vulnerability right now. I love you saying that about prices because literally you can't live in places like Toronto anymore unless if you're making like 2000 3000 a month. It's insane. Like it's usually 2000 for like a decent one bedroom in the city, like right in downtown. Um, that's why a lot of people I know and just in general are like really moving outwards. They're moving to smaller places or they're moving to other places like Montreal where they're still urban, but rents are just cheaper um, because of really the landscape and how the landscape is very different. Montreal is um, it's next to a river, but it's really more of like its own little island. There is Mont Royal, which does have a lot of conservation stuff, but definitely like places like Toronto, where there's um, close to Lake Ontario. It has kind of more of like specific Greenbelt areas with like a lot of river sites, a lot of forests, like that go on for a long time and just very, it's also a big site of tourism. Toronto is very popular and that's why it's become so much more expensive. And thank you for sharing that also with the highway, um, like the proposals and the things that are happening there. There's also a lot of other proposals that are going on, like, and they also, it also affects farmland, forest, wetlands specifically, costs even like 50% more to build on greenfield sites than to intensify already urban areas infrastructure infrastructure that would pave over farmland it just it contributes to poor air quality generates more greenhouse gases um, even building things like airports it eliminates so many more hectares of a soil of land it contributes to further like other development issues and like just the dumping of contaminated soil um, with like pesticide use or other things of farming and like putting it in food and water it's just really um, there's a lot of effects due to urban sprawl and proximity, human proximity to nature. So I guess you've mentioned this already, but could you maybe define, in your opinion, what is urban sprawl? I define it as growth beyond the metropolitan core and growth horizontally instead of vertically. And so when we think about that, I usually often think about uh, homes with backyards and lots of neighborhoods just in suburban areas. So just picture your classic suburbia scene. That is urban sprawl where people are growing across and um, over a large span of land instead of vertically in buildings. So like condominiums and apartments where you can fit hundreds of families in the same amount of surface area that you could fit one or two homes in uh, suburban neighborhoods. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I've, um, I've always been trying to find out more about urban sprawl in general. And I like how you put it, it's like the horizontal more rather than like um, focusing on condos in like a more metro center. For me, like when I look at houses that were built like like a hundred years ago or just like more Victorian houses or even houses that were built in the sixties or it's like, um, I always think that maybe those are a bit more because the way the condos are built with the glass and like the way it, the construction takes like two to three years and it's actually, uh, it really leads to gentrification and all these other things. But definitely I can see that as well. And also just the more like sprawl into other smaller areas um, places like Georgina, Ontario, or like Perry Sound, or like, I guess these other places that have more 
they're just more like nature protected, but they're um, now they're facing a lot more like um, moving out. A lot of people do want to live more like that type of area. Um, not much is urban because urban can be pretty hectic <laughs> for a lot of people to live in. Definitely. I definitely want to live like more somewhere in BC myself, but I can see how um, that definitely happens. So I guess what are the impacts of urban sprawl in general on climate change, the green belt? In order to sprawl, you have to get rid of land. And that's unfortunate. And if it's forested land, we can think about biodiversity loss. If it's farmland, we can think about uh, reduced food security, as I mentioned. Um, next, we can think about the nature-based value that uh, land provides us, such as lack of flooding, um, maintaining our weather, and um, providing habitat for wildlife. All of those things are gone when you pave it over and when urban sprawl happens. So it really is so closely linked to the threats that the urban, um, that the green belt faces. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think for like the green belt, there's a lot of, there's just, there's just a lot of like urban sprawl that's happening. Um, and I think expansion in my opinion is like a really great way to solve it. A really great way to like really lay down the law of like, okay, this is where you can live, but you can't go into these specific areas too much because it really does have a lot of Greenbelt land. One that concerns me the most is the Niagara Escarpment. There's so much tourism in Niagara Falls. There's so many people who are moving to St. Catharines who are moving down there who want to like get involved with the wineries and they want to um, they want to do those tourist stuff. But it really is a big part of the Greenbelt. And the Oak Ridge is moraine. Like that kind of goes more horizontal. Um, past Toronto, like kind of more of the Eastern GTA that, there's a lot of a lot of movement there too, a lot of urban settlement, which I think is a bit problematic as well. But I guess throughout the series, like I just briefly mentioned, uh, the white belt regions are really um, they're very important to the green belt. Um, a lot of people don't know about them. So from what we explained, white belt is very um, it's it's where yeah, there's the gap between the cities' urban boundaries. There's um, of how they appear. Can you maybe give a brief like? why they are important and like to conserve from what we've just briefly talked about. Definitely. Yeah. And I think I would be considered to be living in the white belts. I'm pretty sure. Um, So yeah, they're just really important to understand that, Hey, there, this is land that has potentially already been developed. Right. Um, But there are reasons why we should not develop it further and why it should be really mindful as to why, Um, preserving the limited green space that is left is so important for the communities that are there. Um, Not just for the community standpoint, but also for the environment and larger climate context, of course. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was something else that you touched upon where you talked about uh, the reason it's so important to protect it. And while I agree, and I think it's great that the green belt tells developers, hey, you can't build here. I think now with what we're seeing, we need protection on the protections. So by that, I mean, I think we need policies in place to actually make sure that the government follows certain policies that are in place, because clearly it isn't enough just to tell developers, hey, you can't develop here because of things like MZOs can be put out where it's like, hey, no longer do we need to consult with the public on whether this is a good idea or not, or hey, we can bypass these policies and all of these steps we would have to take typically um, you know, it kind of puts into question, well, how powerful is the green belt then? So I think that we even need stronger policies to protect what we're trying to protect, if that makes sense. I totally agree with that. I think the green belt, like the definitely 
does protect the law from urban sprawl. It's also the benefits of just taking care of it, like even on an individual level, um, like appreciating like the sites you go to, really understanding the biodiversity, the ecosystems in specific, and that the Greenbelt does provide a lot of safeguarding for vital resources like clean air and water, reducing flood risks, and just like a general providing a green space. I think green spaces have been a huge part of the pandemic as well. Everyone, mm-hmm. like, it was safest to go outside and to get in touch with that. And that's something we've also talked about in this series, how the pandemic has impacted our understanding of nature. And it's been, like, a real grounding tool for some people to just, like, go for walks or go for hikes, wherever they are. Even if they're in an urban space, they can go to a park. Um, and it's just, like, it really makes a difference. Like, I've learned a lot more about, like, air, like, quality and water quality and, like, different than I learned, like, way before like the pandemic I've definitely have a bit more knowledge in those areas for sure it's definitely like there's a lot of risks with not conserving it um but there are definitely ways to get involved in protection even I'm not specifically in climate science I'm more in like climate justice but definitely as someone like with your experience maybe how could people like possibly get involved in taking care of the green belt yeah I love that question and I love what you said like the green belt is truly a magical place I think that it's so easy to look at a map and see this two-dimensional you know where is it located but I really recommend that people get out there and hike the trails go into the green belt really go under that forest canopy and look at what you're surrounded by it's so beautiful and I'm so grateful to have had an opportunity with Credit Valley Conservation where For my job, I was able to hike the trails um, at a park, for example, called Silver Creek Conservation Area. And I was able to hike it for hours on end, day after day. And it isn't until you're in a forest every single day that you notice these incredible species and the smallest little changes from, you know, I guess in the fall time where all of these mushrooms would appear, you would see some that are bright neon orange. And then the next day, there's a whole bunch of bright blue ones. And then there would be a little newt or salamander swimming in the water. Just so many species that you really would think, wow, like this is not Ontario. It's just such a gorgeous place. And so just from that perspective, I think it's so important to protect it because ultimately once it's paved over, that's it right? It takes so many years for that to ever return. Um, I would even argue that it can't return in our lifetime. It's just taken so many years of evolution for that to happen. And it's just a really incredible thing that once it's gone, it's truly irreplaceable. So just thinking about it as the land it is and respecting the land the way it is and all of the the things that the land has transformed and gone through is just in itself something extremely valuable that I think that we shouldn't take for granted. From another standpoint, aside from getting connected to the land and advocating for it, you can always reach out to your city councillors, which is something that we do at the CCC. Um, We've tried to talk to our councillors about it, um, specific to the 413. Delegate at your city council. It's free. So if you just Google, when is your council getting together to talk about issues, see if the 413 is on the agenda. And if not, see if there's a green belt issue or another environmental issue. And it's free to participate. You know, you just present your case as to why you think that a certain law or policy or discussion should be passed or not passed and share why. I think people just need to show up. And even if you say something for one minute, 
that's fine. Just show up your presence, especially if you're a youth listening to this, your voice matters so, so much in those rooms. Next, I would say signing petitions. So of course, um, environmental defense, grow the green belt, Ontario nature, so many other organizations have petitions where you can sign to protect the, the green belt or to oppose the 413. So that's another form of advocacy that you can take. But first and foremost, yeah, I would definitely recommend hiking the land, just getting out there. For sure. Um, definitely as someone who's more like, who doesn't really go to the green belt as much anymore. Um, I am more in Montreal now. Definitely when I was back in Toronto, um, I'm so like always like, I need to get to the Don Valley River. I need to get to those like different trails because definitely for me, days when I can't go to a gym, days where it's like really hard to do that type of exercise, even just walking, really walking and hiking things I've wanted to do a lot more. Like I love Mont Royal here, but that mountain is crazy. Like it is so hard to like hike up in that one day where I find that a lot of other green belt trails, they're way easier to hike to access. And also like there's a lot of urban river valleys within the green belt. It provides many services, including like protecting freshwater flooding, it can cool the air even up to like 11 degrees Celsius during heat waves. Like I found that in my research, the foundation, the park people, conservation authorities, they really encourage citizens to protect urban river valleys by participating in river valley stewardship work, like volunteer uh, positions at different justice organizations, climate science organizations, like shoreline restoration, planting, planting native plants, removing invasive species, creating pollinator gardens. Those are some of the bigger ones, but definitely just getting involved, like you said, just really understanding it and like looking around and like being a part of that process and just like walking through those trails can make the biggest difference. And yeah, like definitely contacting your local MPs, like your counselors, um, so vital to really asserting your own voice. But also I found that being nonpartisan is a huge thing. Really like understanding what nonpartisan information is. This can come from like any climate science organization, climate justice organization, SUIT actually provides a lot of nonpartisan um, information. When the election happened, we had a huge list of like what each party was presenting and like a nonpartisan format. And that was a really great way for me personally, when I voted for the first time to really understand and to vote just nonpartisan and to understand that the climate crisis is a nonpartisan issue and that climate change is a nonpartisan uh, topic. It's something that has to be, you have to include climate science as well as like different plans to combat against climate change. Just really brought a thought to my mind of the 413. It's just so devastating. You're right that it's become a politicized issue because it sounds like a no brainer. Should we protect the green belt? Yes. Should we follow the law that protects these places? Yes. It just makes sense from a climate standpoint and even just a value standpoint. But Unfortunately, it's become so politicized, and I think a lot of parties have actually put it on their platform for this upcoming election. So it's really interesting. Um, but yes, if you aren't, um, if you're a little more shy and you don't really want to go out to speak to your city councilors and that kind of thing, something else you can do is actually order a lawn sign that says stop the 413 on it. I don't know if you've seen any in Toronto, but they're definitely around. Mm -hmm. And you can order it for free on Environmental Defense's website and just put it on your lawn. It just really helps to advocate in a nonverbal way. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'm not from Toronto anymore. I've gone there pretty frequently, uh, but I've seen signs like that in Montreal too for other elections or things that are happening. But yeah, so I guess just to finish off, I have one last question to ask. So as someone who is like really involved in like climate justice, land stewardship specifically, 
I've been doing a lot of uh, research and like conversations with indigenous land stewards. There are also a lot of people who are um, BIPOC or who are non-indigenous who understand land conservation stewardship. So I guess from your experience with like climate councils and like other amazing work, um, where should someone go if they want to learn about land stewardship work? I would recommend the uh, conservation authorities. And that's again, because that's where my background is coming from really um, as someone in conservation. And I just think that they always have the most interesting workshops and tree planting opportunities, restoration projects. You could pull out invasives, um, maintain trails. You can be even a part of the youth councils there. So like Credit Valley and TRCA have their own youth councils that you could be a part of. Um, and yeah, there's just so many opportunities. They're always looking for volunteers. So definitely look them up or whatever watershed or conservation authority you're a part of, look into it. I'm sure that they'll have opportunities. Also within your municipality. So uh, for me, it would be the region of Peel. Or when I think about the city, I think about the city of Brampton. They often have stewardship opportunities where you can get out and get involved. In Brampton specifically, there's something called PAL, P-A-L, People Against Littering. If you're interested in picking up litter locally to help the biodiversity and the habitat of these spaces, um, you could always help them and pick up some litter. That's always fun. Or um, Bike Brampton is another organization where you can bike um, around the city and just make sure that it's sustainable. And while you're around there, you'll get to know the local trails. So there are tons of groups. I could just keep on listing them. But just to start off and in particular to restoration, that's where I would start. For sure. Definitely just like really understanding like climate change and like the climate science behind it, as well as really like getting into more of that volunteer work, which is like those different organizations who have that information available for people who are in environmental studies or even not. I'm someone who's in history and digital studies. And I was surprisingly, you made me think of when you talked about like litter picking up and stuff. I used to do that as a kid. I remember I would do that like for my elementary school. And I remember like doing signs about like save the polar bears and stuff, even though like back then, like even 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of collective mobilization, like at different levels, I think for like regional grassroots, grassroots stuff was really hard to access back then. But now I think with social media, it's really like a lot easier to get into grassroots stuff and to really understand environmental, like not politicized, like politicized environmental issues. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to add or say before we end off? Many spaces in our backyard are valuable, not just for ourselves, but for climate and for future generations. But as you mentioned, for mental wellness, and especially through the pandemic we've been through, just recommend people to get outside, connect with nature. It's a lot more magical than you may think. And even the most mundane species around us have incredible historical value and hold so much knowledge. And yeah, just would recommend for people to get outside and advocate for the land. Thank you, Miranda, for taking the time to share your insightful perspectives with us. This episode has shown just how crucial the Green Belt is in the fight against climate change. If you like what you hear, check out our work at Shake Up the Establishment. You can find us on our website or Instagram to continue learning about important topics like environmental stewardship, social justice issues, and political accountability. That's S-H-A-K-E-U-P-T-H-E-E-S-T-A-B dot O-R-G. And find us under the same name on Instagram. To learn more about the Green Belt, visit the Green Belt Foundation online.